You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Corrine Graff, and I'm a senior advisor here at the U.S. Institute of Peace. On behalf of USIP and our partner in this event, the Heller School for Social Policy at Brandeis University, it's my pleasure to welcome you all to this virtual event on diversity, equity, and inclusion in peacebuilding. This event is part of the Heller School series on the first 100 days of the Biden-Harris administration. Our program today includes a moderated panel discussion and a Q&A, all of which will run for about an hour and a half. Please feel free to follow along on Twitter with the hashtag DEI for Peace. Those of you in the audience can post any questions for our speakers on the USIP event landing page, and we'll try to get, get to those questions during the Q&A. But before we begin, I'd like to say a few words about the Institute and our rationale for hosting this discussion today. For those of you who may not be familiar with it, USIP is a nonpartisan, independent institute founded by the U.S. Congress and dedicated to the proposition that a world without violent conflict is possible, practical, and essential for U.S. and global security. So today, we're focused on the prospects of applying peacebuilding principles, um, principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion to the international peacebuilding efforts of large donor organizations like USAID. And you may be asking yourself why this discussion, why now, isn't peacebuilding fundamentally about these principles, inclusion, empowerment, participation. Indeed, as the groundbreaking UN World Bank report on Pathways for Peace put it several years ago, inclusion is or should be at the center of the peacebuilding enterprise. The report reminds us, for example, that preventing violence requires to us to engage not just with the elites that control the means of violence and power, but with the communities that are directly affected by violence and too often marginalized from decision-making. So that in a nutshell is the theory of peace building, but the reality as we all know is that international donors are still far from applying these principles uniformly in their work. And the global pandemic may be setting us further back, leading to less engagement by international actors with conflict-affected communities, less financing for peace building and more marginalization. So where are we now? What do we know about how these principles are or are not being incorporated into peace building and development practice? It's clear that progress has been slow, but the main challenge is that we really lack good global measurements of inclusion and local ownership of programs. One set of benchmarks that provide an indication of where progress stands are the annual assessments of international donor commitments that were made five years ago at the World Humanitarian Summit. Several of those commitments made under an agreement called the Grand Bargain are indicative. So for example, as of last year, only 25% of donor funding was provided directly to local organizations. By some estimates, that number is much lower, as low as 2% of official development assistance. Another indicator, 97% of donors report integrating gender equality and women's empowerment across humanitarian programs. But because donors have yet to develop indicators to measure the extent of community uh, participation, it's unclear what this number really means on the ground. There are no indications that donors are meeting their grand bargain commitments to make development programs more flexible in crisis situations. 
We have ad hoc reporting by some organizations like Catholic Relief Services that are developing mechanisms to build flexibility and feedback loops into their programs, but we have no evidence of a trend in this regard. And not surprisingly, this lack of progress is reflected in survey data. The OECD's Lives in Crisis Project, for example, shows that respondents in conflict-affected communities feel they have little, if any, influence over the aid they receive from large donors. And of course, the problem with this approach, which is still highly centralized and rigid, is it doesn't work. When programs fail to meet the needs of communities, they're unlikely to achieve their stabilization or prevention goals. When they're designed without sufficient understanding of local pol political or conflict dynamics, they can even exacerbate underlying tensions. So these numbers paint a rather bleak picture of where things stand, but there is room for optimism because we now have two new policy developments on the U.S. side that have the potential to bring change to the way the U.S. engages. So the first is the Global Fragility Act, signed into U.S. law in late 2019, which builds on some of the criticism of the so-called liberal approach to peacebuilding as too top-down, centralized, and rigid. This new law builds on two decades of lessons learned from international engagement in Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere. And it received bipartisan support in the US Congress on account of a recognition that effective peace building is not only the right thing to do, but is cost-effective and contributes to US and global security. Currently, efforts by the Biden-Harris administration are underway to begin implementing the law through pilots in a small number of countries and regions. Its key provisions include authorities and tools for U.S. agencies like the State Department and USAID to test new approaches to conflict prevention and stabilization, to do so with more flexibility, and to adopt locally-led models that are consistent with peace-building best practices and DEI principles. The law also calls for a more coherent approach, recognizing that so long as what the U.S. government is doing on the military and security assistance side is not aligned with or undermines diplomatic and development efforts, little progress can be made. The second policy development is a U.S. presidential directive issued earlier this year that aims to promote racial equity in U.S. federal agencies, including USAID and the State Department. Among other things, the executive order requires those agencies to put in place plans to address barriers to participation in their programs. So for example, they're directed to reform the procurement and contracting mechanisms that make it so challenging for small local organizations to receive US federal funds. So with not one, but two new US policies designed to promote more inclusive US programs, particularly in fragile environments, an important question arises. Will they lead to real change in the way the U.S. government does business? To help shed light on this question, we have with us today several leading experts on the localization of aid and on local peace building. Each of them come at this question from different vantage points and will help us understand why this agenda is so important, what the obstacles to progress are, and what solutions can usher in real change. So with that, I'd like to introduce my partner and co-host in this event, Pamina Furchow, who will introduce our panelists and moderate the rest of the discussion. Pamina is Associate Professor of Coexistence and Conflict at Brandeis University, where she studies the international accompaniment of local communities affected by mass violence. Her work supports efforts that promote participatory numbers and mixed method research, such as the Everyday Peace Indicators, a project and 501c3 nonprofit she, leaves, she leads with Professor Roger McGinty from Durham University. 
her award-winning monograph, Reclaiming Everyday Peace, Local Voices in Measurement and Evaluation After War, was published in 2018. She's published widely. Conflict uh, between she was a senior uh, Jannings Randall Fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace in 2016. But and she continues USIP, to partner with USIP as a consultant and as a grant recipient. And last but not least, Dr. Furchow is a fellow graduate of the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, Switzerland. So with that, it's my pleasure to turn the floor over to Panina. Thank you, Corinne. <clears throat> and it is my pleasure to introduce our panelists today, um, starting with Dr. Susanna Campbell uh, from American University. Um, uh, Dr. Campbell is an assistant professor at the School for International Service at American University, specializing in international state building, peace building, peacekeeping, development, and humanitarian aid. Uh, next. Uh, Rosa Emilia Salamanca um, from the Cooperación de Investigación y Acción Social y Económica, CIACE, in Colombia, uh, is a women's rights advocate in Colombia and director of, of CIACE, an organization working for peace and human rights and democracy from a feminist perspective. CIASA is also uh, an implementing partner of the Heller, Brandeis, and Everyday Peace Indicators work I co-lead in Colombia. Next, we have with us uh, Jennifer Hawkins, Dr. Jennifer Hawkins, um, who is the Senior Women Peace and Security Advisor for USAID. She also currently serves as the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force Lead in the Bureau of Conflict Prevention and Stabilization, where the task force is charged with looking at the critical intersections of DEI in conflict and peace building. And last but not least, we have Dr. Joseph Sani. Uh, Sani is Vice President at USIP and leads the Africa Center. Uh, Sani has over two decades of experience working in the peacebuilding sector with civil society, governments, businesses, and international organizations in Africa. So thank you all. Thank you to our panelists for joining us. Um, and I'm going to kick, kick us off uh, with some questions. Um, so as uh, Corinne outlined in her introduction, it is clear that we already know uh, a lot uh, about what needs to be done to improve peace building. Uh, and much has been written by academics and practitioners, academics uh, at USIP, at, at Heller, at other universities, um, about the shortcomings of international peace building, in particular as it pertains to accessing and assisting local communities in war-torn contexts. Um, however, we are now entering into new territory with the pandemic, uh, and uh, this changes things for us. So my first questions will focus on the current context on the ground in conflict-affected contexts. Um, and my first question is directed toward Rosa Emilia. Rosa Emilia, can you tell us about how the pandemic has affected marginalized groups and their ability to engage in peacebuilding? Um, and in particular, women and ethnic minorities in Colombia. Thank you so much, Pamina. Yes, I will be, I will go directly to the point after thanking everyone for this 
invitation. I think the pandemic just raised a problem that is always happening when you have crisis. Every time you have crisis, then the impact that you have in people, especially in women and people that have any kind of discrimination will be really very hard on them. So, as you know, Colombia is trying, well, has signed a peace agreement, is trying to move forward with this peace agreement that it has been very difficult to move forward because of many tensions and many discussions and sometimes not implementation. And in that context, the pandemic arised and then you can see how this uh, crisis of the pandemic will add on to the crisis that was coming previously with the non-achievement peace and with the conflicts that have been appearing again during the country. There are people that they are uh, saying something like we are trying and we are just heading to a fourth cycle of new violence in Colombia and that is very complicated. So in, in the people that had some kind of work or were in still in some kind of, of inclusiveness in economy, then with the pandemic went out. And I think that we have to understand that uh, this type of crisis will attempt specifically to care, to care of people. And the ones that will take care of people are always more or less all the time, women. So women have to return home in a very huge amount of people because they have to take care of children because children were not going to the schools. So they have to be in, back in, in that home and they have to take care of food. They have to have care of all the assistance that care will take on the shoulders when this when economy is not functioning so it was a big big and it is being a big impact in employment in health and then in violence because in violence once more we have to change this idea that peace is only a public affair because for women peace is also a private affair because all the discrimination for people inside the, the, the houses will impact directly. So we had, from one day to another, a rise of violence inside the houses in an incredible way. And just for finishing and trying to bring a little bit more, the impact for the communities, the ethnic communities, was very high and it is very high because many of indigenous and native communities are not used to have this kind of infections and they they receive it highly in a very very high impact so they didn't know what was happening what what was all about you know one of the main um one of the main leaders of the National Indian Organization died of COVID. And uh, the 
the price of people dying and leadership dying is so high because for us it's so difficult to have leadership. There is a huge inversion of resources, knowledge, and work and activism of having all this leadership. So when these impacts come, lots of leaders, uh, women and men have died, and this is an incredible loss for all society because it's really, it's, it's amazing what, what it means for us. And then we have seen that with the lockup, many of the uh, conflict and armed groups took over again many of the regions. So it was like every, nobody was outside. So they just took over some places and they began to, to have really a high impact in peace builders, uh, human rights defenders, and ex-combatants, men and women. We can say that for women, we have doubled our deaths in, in the sense of, of having double our numbers of deaf people during the black and during the close-up. So it has been a huge impact. And what we feel is that in every way, in local communities, in in the regions, in the, in, in the whole country, the impact has put us back, I don't know, 10, 15 years from where we were, where we were trying to go ahead. And we now we have to develop again new structures, new ways and new leadership even to try to uh, transform what we call and what we need to be peace in the country nowadays. So COVID has had a really huge impact. And also in girls, well, you know, uh, violence against uh, girls in, in these places and with all what is, is the context now, well, it has a rise in 150% uh, in the numbers, in the real numbers, because it has been arising in such a big way that we are really very worried of what is happening now and how we are going backwards. So thank you so much, Pamina. Rosa Emilia. Um, I mean, uh, clearly the pandemic has exacerbated old problems um, and existing ones. Um, and I'm wondering if um, we can turn to Jennifer uh, to tell us a little bit about what donors are seeing on the ground and if you're seeing the same kinds of things that Rosa Emilia has highlighted um, and how the pandemic also has affected your own ability to engage locally in conflict-affected contexts. Thank you so much, Pamina. And I couldn't have said it better than Rosa Amelia. I mean, she really laid it out perfectly in terms of identifying uh, the local context there. Um, we, of course, as uh, Rosa Amelia noted, we have seen an increase in gender-based violence as a result of the pandemic, and that's globally. And as you identified, Rosa Amelia, so eloquently, you know, peace is defined also in the home. And as we saw in lockup and quarantine and curfew, there was little peace inside the home. And in in fact, 
we have called it a pandemic inside a pandemic. Many of my colleagues, gender-based violence, in fact, was a new pandemic inside the pandemic. And it just created a ripple effect, in particular, access to services. We saw that decrease, you know, in terms of where women and girls go to get services as a result of the quarantine and the lockdown. We saw increase in curfews. This disproportionately infected uh, women and girls, including, as Rosie Amelia noted, local security forces that were implementing uh, curfews that as a result had effect on violence against women and girls in marginalized communities. And then of course, for us in terms of access to service, which is a lot of programming that we provide, justice for survivors as they defined it, uh, the closing of the curf of, of courts and, and, and curfews associated with closing of courts and other legal entities uh, prevented women to getting access um, to, to justice. So it was on the psychosocial side, on the health side and on the assets to justice side. And then just talking to colleagues in the field, you know, what they've missed the most, I think, during the pandemic is that engagement and relationships that they've built with local communities, particularly women leaders. Um, it's been particularly difficult for women leaders who are in marginalized communities that may not have good internet access or access to computers or phones to meet with the partners regularly. So that has created quite a strain on, on the relationships. And, you know, we've had to be very creative um, to meet with some of our local par partners during this pandemic. And I think that is one thing that I've heard the most is that face-to-face -face engagement with our local partners has been quite missed. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Um, and uh, for you both for giving us some context about what things look like on the ground now. Um, and, you know, clearly the pandemic is, is providing us with additional hurdles to overcome. Um, and there were already some significant structural obstacles to participatory and inclusive uh, U.S. development and peacebuilding assistance. Um, I'd like to take this opportunity now to ask Susanna to help us frame the discussion um, by asking you, uh, Susanna, uh, what does it actually mean to apply DEI principles to peace building and development work? Um, and does DEI necessarily mean focusing on more bottom-up inclusion, or does it mean enforcing a more inclusive agenda according to Western standards? Um, in other words, what happens when donor and beneficiary conceptualizations of inclusion collide? Thanks so much, Pamina, and thank you to you and Karen for organizing this important discussion. Um, I'm going to break things apart because these are actually a lot of really big questions that get at, one, the huge challenges facing international aid, and in particular, the huge challenges facing international aid in conflict-affected countries. So I want to start by making a distinction between DEI and bottom-up peacebuilding or localized peacebuilding for a minute. So if we take that the basic idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion is that inclusion is the priority, that for everything else to work, inclusion needs to be within, throughout an institution and in how the institution actually relates to its environment. So the idea of inclusion is the priority for DEI and it is a bedrock of the idea behind peace building and sustainable development. Corinne laid this out at the beginning, but I just wanna kind of revisit this a little bit. 
that the basic theory of all of this peace building work is that if if exclusion in some form is what leads to war and underdevelopment, then inclusion in political, social, economic institutions is what is necessary for peace. This means both top-down and bottom-up inclusion, right? And by top-down, I don't mean U.S. government top-down. I mean state-down, society up. But because the aid architecture itself is top-down, the work of making peacebuilding better is actually increasing participation of all the different stakeholders who can be benefited or harmed from the peacebuilding activity. The Global Fragility Act gets this right. It builds on two decades of research and experience and says that for the U.S. government to effectively work in conflict-affected and fragile countries, it has to do away with sideline its own top-down imposition and focus on bottom-up participation and inclusion. The problem is this is extremely difficult to do. And so what I want to do right now is talk a little bit about how DEI, as it has been conceptualized, particularly within the, U the U.S. agenda and within the U.S. government, is part of the solution to more effective peace building. That DEI, as framed by the Biden executive order, is focusing primarily on domestic resources. It's focusing on how the federal government itself needs to change its composition, needs to change who it is, who the government is, and who it is by extension, who gets contracts, who is served, to think about what the government looks like and how that influences who it serves. So DEI, as it is framed within that executive order, is about internal institutional change within the U.S. government. And that is actually one of the major things that's needed for more effective peace building as well. So what does DEI look like in the U.S. government aid architecture? If we're going to take this principle that diversity, equity, and inclusion within an institution is necessary to actually ensure that that institution serves the full population as it should in an equitable way. One, DEI, the implication is that who the U.S. government is matters and that that needs to change. So both who is involved in terms of race, gender, and other features in relation to decision-making. So who in Congress makes decisions about aid, aid allocation? Who is involved? Who's determining the agenda? Second, who within the USAID architecture is making decisions? Third, who are the implementing partners? Who's getting the contracts and why? Who they represent matters. Because if you see somebody delivering a good to you, that always looks different or seems to be different from you in many, many different ways, then maybe that good is not actually challenging the hierarchy and exclusion that, it's, that it purports to challenge. And this is where I think it becomes really difficult because it's not only about changing who the U.S. government is within the U.S., it's also changing who the government, U.S. government is in a fragile or conflict-affected country, in any country. So how does the U.S. government represent or reinforce the exclusion through its procedures and behaviors and by who its staff are? 
If you purport to change a hierarchy, but you represent the hierarchy, then it is unlikely that people will trust your message. Donors and multilaterals are set up to reinforce the status quo. They are set up to reinforce the state, to respond to the state, not to actually reinforce and respond to communities. That requires a fundamental shift in how it's structured. So the first step in a DEI approach is asking who is included at the table for the US aid architecture at the country office level. Which national staff are, rep are represented? Who do they represent? Who's, who's there and who's not? And so what I'm trying to argue is that for the kind of broader bottom-up peace building agenda that Pamina was talking about, we need to take seriously DEI reform within the US government and within its goods and services and who provides them at the field level. And I'm happy to unpack that more later. Thank you. Thank you so much, Susanna. Um, <clears throat> that really sets uh, sets us up well for, for my next question, which is for Sani, which is basically, is this all possible? Um, is it possible to bring um, the power and decision-making authority closer to communities in this way or in other ways? Um, uh, and, and what about the subnational level? How, how can we um, focus on not just uh, U.S. aid to other states, but also see the local as being more than just another state, but also a sub-state? Um, and, and, and I guess also, if you can talk a little bit about, from your perspective, why is this important? Why is it important to do this um, from a program effectiveness uh, standpoint? Um, thank you, Pamina, and thank you to the audience. Uh, I think, uh, and good morning or good afternoon, depending on where you are. I understood that uh, people are tuning up from different parts of the world, so thank you. Uh, I will pick up where Rosa and Jennifer uh, left. I think COVID, because I think COVID has really shifted the paradigm. Uh, the reason I'm bringing back the COVID element is uh, to start talking, uh, to show the value of engaging with local actors and local communities, important to understand their value add, right? So uh, COVID, doing COVID, and uh, I want, I'm, I'm seconding what Rosa said and Jennifer. COVID really highlighted some challenges. But at the same time, I want us to recognize the contribution of women and civil society organizations and local stakeholders during this challenging time. They were not just victims, they were also heroes, right? So in our work, uh, we have seen more creativity, more assertiveness, and new forms of activism and services. Working with partners, for example, Sister Without Borders, one of USIP partners in Kenya, we have seen them come up with new solutions, like workshop support groups for women uh, victims of uh, violence, for example. We have seen young people in Cameroon using creative ways to raise awareness around hand washing, around masks, etc. So I just want to recognize that and show that COVID has really brought up uh, this, uh, this in, uh, um, assertiveness and creativity. And also, 
donors like us and some other organizations have started to recognize the importance of local knowledge, local connection, right, and social capital, something they don't have. So we, we have learned, on, it was an inconvenient truth, I think, we have learned to rely on our local partners. That was a place of uh, discomfort for many donors because you can, they could not travel. So you don't need to send that expert in the South. The South was taking care of your own business. And that was a, re a powerful realization I don't want us to miss in this conversation. And, and this has also pushed a redefinition of roles and relationships, and even the definition of power. Like now shifting power over and looking at power with. And I think that's something we may, we may run the risk of losing in this conversation, right? Because uh, we, look at, we always tend to look at the global south as a glass half empty. I wanted to remind us that it's a glass half full. And so in a nutshell, I think COVID has highlighted the importance of humility and trust in the relationship with local partners. And trust and humility are very critical into this discussion of diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Because at the end of the day, just to add to what um, uh, Susanna was saying, I think I don't also want us to lose the importance of equity. More than inclusion, at the end of the day, it's about equity, it's about justice. Because people can be included, but we are not changing the power dynamics. Equity forces us not only to add new chairs around the table, but to change the table and to change the nature of the conversation because that's what we are striving towards. How do we bring equity and justice through diversity and inclusion? But at the end of the day, it's about justice. So why? So I just wanted to preface and to get back to your question about uh, what are we missing by not implementing these principles of diversity, equity, and justice. When I think about that question, Pamina, I'm reminded of a quote alleged uh, to uh, uh, Muhammad Gandhi, who once said, whatever you do for me, but without me, you do against me. And so by not engaging with the global south, with local partners, we frankly create a climate of suspicion. And as I said at the beginning, we miss, up, we miss the opportunity to harness local knowledge, local connections, this wisdom and the social capital. And as a result, we lost in transaction cost and we affect the effectiveness of our programs. So it just makes common sense like for our own interest, to engage with local partners, with the Global South, in a genuine way, with humility, with empathy, right? If we want to be effective, there is, we cannot shortcut our way out of this. So I will stop there and then uh, just to allow us to move forward. Thank you so much, Sani. Um, <clears throat> 
I think, uh, again, it's a great transition um, to ask uh, baby um, Rosa Emilia um, to talk a little bit about um, how we know that we've achieved DEI in uh, global development and peace building assistance. Um, so uh, what should donors be aiming for? What should we be aiming for in our humility? Um, what is the standard uh, for an inclusive enough or a participatory enough program? Um, are you able to give us any examples of successful programs? Well, thank you so much. Um, I was just, um, I, I was thinking about what Sunny was saying and I really agree with him because I think it's Inclusiveness is like a method, but the goal is to have equity and justice. And we can talk so much about inclusiveness and and how donors or, I don't know, I think we have to change some relations and and the way we, we have these relations. I think the power relations are a clue for that. So sometimes I, I think, what are we talking when we talk bottom-up and up-down and what is all this about? It's like if, I don't know, sometimes in the global south, we are, we are like treated like, like children, like that we have to have advice all the time, that we don't have our own ideas, that we don't have our own knowledge. And I think that it has changed a lot. I think that the global south, as Sunny was saying, were and is all the time very creative to bring other answers, to bring another kind of questions, to to be in in life in in another way. So I think it's not um, a issue of button down or up down. It's a or down up is a, a dialogue between knowledge, between different knowledges. It's, it's an horizontal dialogue between different knowledges that will bring on board different experiences and will treat us as adults, not anymore as children, because from the Sometimes we, from the Western perspective, what we call the Western or, or the Global North, um, they need to have all the answers that maybe we can and we have for our own realities. So that is a frame. I think that for donors, it's very important to change the way um, that they they talk with people and recognize there is a lot of knowledge in people, uh, national level, local level, women's, uh, indigenous people, black people. So I think there is another kind of conversation. And I think dialogues, I think nowadays dialogue is a clue, not at, asking questions and moving forward for nuances in kind of dialogues between different people. And then I will move for inclusion. Uh, Pamina, I think that, for example, in, in our country, we need another frame of state because the actual frame of state 
it, it, it has no place for inclusiveness because it has it, it is already shaped and is shaped in a kind of democracy, in a kind of justice, in a kind of equity that doesn't allow inclusiveness of new ideas, of new dynamics. They will ask and they maybe will make people participate and they will have lots of lists where people have been there in meetings and so and so. But for us, inclusiveness is changing the way the state will deliver the answers for, for respecting rights and for respecting people that are different, that don't have the same ideas, that will have another kind of idea of what, what I don't know, what, what authorities, and for indigenous people, there are different authorities, and for women, there are another idea of security. So I think that really, we need to have a new kind of conversation. And I think COVID, COVID has shown so much distance between what, pe what is reality and the inequity and the global inequity and, and the, for example, for us, the access for vaccination now is, is something that we don't know when it's going to happen. So I think that for having this in another way, so I think just for closing, I think that there are many examples. I mean, just, I, I will give you the example of the peace agreement. When we can talk and we can move forward our ideas, the peace agreement in Colombia shows the way that, and the language and the way and the methods that women had to express and to think that the tool of a peace agreement will change reality. And I think that the tool of uh, development and the tool of peace and the tool of, of um, inclusiveness must be seen as a tool for changing power relation and really finding kinds of equity and justice and another way of, of, of framing states that will be, that will really include diversity from everyone. I, I mean, I think that actual kind of frame of state is dying, is not any more useful for what diversity and includeness means. Thank you, Rosa Emilia. Uh, so I'm going to turn again to Jennifer, um, taking into account what Rosa Emilia um, just said, and from the perspective, obviously, of USAID, which you represent, what steps has USAID taken um, to make its own programs more inclusive, and perhaps more importantly, as Sani said, equitable uh, in conflict-affected contexts? Yeah, thank you. And I think it's a great point that Sani made in terms of making that distinction, right? And I encourage all of us to use that in our language going forward as we talk about inclusion does not necessarily mean equitable partnerships because it is a power dynamic that is in place. Um, at USAID, I would say, you know, we've taken a really reflective approach this past year. 
um, to look at our relationships, particularly as I you know, represent not just USAID, but also the Women, Peace and Security Agenda and the implementation of that effort. That is that is my expertise. That's what I work in. That's my world. So I really resonate with Rosa Amelia's comments because I think we speak of the same world in the WPS space. And so we had a real pleasure to work with the University of San Diego, the Kroc Institute uh, for Peace and Justice. Many people have known, I'm sure our USAP colleagues have worked with them in the past. And together we embarked on a year-long research agenda with women peace builders and then fellow donors. So the US, the Canadians, the UK, UN entities, and other kind of large INGOs that are responsible for implementing some of our programs and activities. And we embarked on a really interesting journey to think about equitable partnerships and what that really means to local women peace builders. And what we found, and the report is coming out um, in a few months, but what we found in the initial findings um, in our 20th anniversary, in fact, of, of UN Resolution 1325, we had uh, our folks come on to give the initial findings of this report because we thought, you know, as an international community, it's really timely we heard from peace builders and women um, about equitable partnerships. And out of that report, we found that about 100% of the peace builders, so all of them, pretty much, and 95% of the peace funders, excuse me, 94% of the peace funders felt that equity-based improvements must be made. So everyone has identified that this is a problem. So there isn't the donor community saying there isn't a problem. We have all identified that there is a problem in terms of equitable partnerships with local women, uh, leaders and organizations. About 85% found it difficult, um, and this is the local women peace builders, to actually apply for funding. So now we're diving even deep. We're talking about the complexities of even getting to the application process, getting invited to apply. Is it in the language that I speak? Do I have the right um, technology to even apply to this type of funding? So that tells you a lot there. 85% said that. And about 54% found that online platforms, applications, served as a complexity and a barrier to even apply. So about half have I identified that that is the barrier. And 68% applied for funding with either no or little staff support. So again, we're getting at the capacity building needs of women's organization, not even having the staff support to apply for very complex funding mechanisms. So it was a quite telling experience, engaging one-on-one -on -one directly. This was pre-COVID, so we had the pleasure of being with each other to talk about these issues as funders and as peace builders. And it was quite telling to engage in a conversation because they actually saw kind of the barriers, systemic barriers, <clears throat> excuse me, that we deal with, you know, as, a, as government entities and how complex the bureaucracy was. And they would look at us with big eyes and said, we had no idea it was that complicated. You know, we really just think it's about giving money and giving a funding. And we would look at them and say, you know what? We have to do better in terms of making this more accessible um, to all women, um, particularly women that maybe in rural communities don't have the education or the mechanisms to apply for funding. So I think right now we are taking charge and taking it very seriously. Uh, we always have been at USAID, but we're looking for innovative ways to really increase flexible funding mechanisms, which we've done really successfully in women, peace and security programming that can provide not just timely, but effective funding directly to local women leaders. We've identified barriers to women's participation as simple as transportation, childcare, elder care, 
money to just participate in very simple trainings to prepare them for the peace table. And so in certain contexts, we've applied funding just to do that, to literally get women the transportation they need or the monies they need to get a babysitter or someone to look after their elder parent so that they can participate in the in peace processes. And we find these very simple solutions to have great gains. And it didn't cost a lot of money. It's just actually doing what Rosie Amelia and others have said is listening directly to those women about their needs and the barriers that prevent them to, uh, to participate in uh, peace processes. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, it's, I'm, I'm so glad that you were able to share a bit about, um, from your perspective, uh, what the hurdles are that you have to overcome, because I don't think that that's always clear um, when USAID is funding uh, community partners or, I mean, even um, funding um, intermediaries, right, international organizations. Um, it's not always uh, clear in country what the hurdles are that you need to overcome. So that's clearly something also that maybe, you know, needs to be communicated more. Like what, you know, what are your barriers and what are, how can we work around those? Um, so thank you for your transparency there. Um, I, I think I'd like to now move uh, to Susanna and talk a little bit about the tools necessary to make progress. Um, and maybe Susanna, if you can tell us a little bit more about what the role of learning measurement and evaluation is uh, in ensuring that development assistance is more inclusive. Um, and whether it's possible to be responsive and adaptable to local needs uh, and still at the same time adequately measure. Thanks, Pamina. So this is a fascinating conversation. I've really enjoyed listening to my fellow panelists. And I think that I just want to pick up on something um, that Sunny said, which is with the kind of COVID may have led to people not getting the resources that they need, but the lack of intrusiveness of international aid, right, actually gave a space for people to innovate, which I think is really interesting to look at what has been possible in the face of COVID that may not have been possible otherwise because donors, implementing agency, whoever was actually too present. And this is more of a question, right? You know, what are the implications of this? Because there's a positive and a negative side. And I would also assume that the negative side is that COVID has had a huge impact on the learning of aid agencies, right? So Jennifer said, we've really missed the face-to-face -face interaction. All aid agencies are based somewhere else, right? Their agenda is made somewhere else. They are fundamentally disconnected and they are fundamentally supply driven. No matter how much we talk about how they should be driven by the actually needs in the country and by the community, the whole architecture is supply driven about what Congress wants to do, about what agencies know how to do, about what implementing partners have strengths and, and weaknesses in. And so learning, this kind of fundamental learning, which the definition of learning that I use in my own work is not just the intake of information. It's the intake of information about what's working and what's not, and then action 
to reduce the gap between your aims, what you actually want to do, and your outcomes, what you actually do. So learning is not just information. Learning is information, processing that information, and then action to do better. And what I find in my last book is that this type of learning, this type of adaptation is necessary for peace building. It's necessary because you, this is fundamentally this top-down supply-driven architecture. That is just the structure of aid. It is accountable to people who are not based in that country, and yet it tries to influence the behaviors of people that are based in that country. And so monitoring and evaluation can have a positive effect on peacebuilding success, and it can also have a negative effect on peacebuilding success. So I want to kind of pull this apart a little bit. But first, I want to start by one of the kind of most positive ways I think that it can have an effect. And that is in my initial distinction related to if we think about DEI as internal reform of how the US government does aid, right? So DEI applied here is about how does the US government need to reform who it hires, who it contracts, and who it includes at the table. Let's think about it as this kind of internal reform process. Monitoring and evaluation can be extremely powerful in actually enabling and supporting that because the people who will report on the indicators are people within the US government themselves. So it is a top-down agenda. So you can say, you know, my office has instituted these procedures. Let me report on them. So thinking about not just monitoring what the U.S. government does in, a, in another country, but monitoring how the U.S. government operates is a very powerful tool for transforming how the U.S. government operates. On the other hand, monitoring and evaluation that is focused on monitoring what is done in the country by the U.S. government can actually lead to as much harm, do as much damage as it can good. Because if the, the, if the target that you're going for in a country is a target that is determined by Washington and that is not relevant to that country, then having being forced to monitor and evaluate yourself in relation to that goal makes you aim at the wrong target. It actually supports exclusion of local voices and actors. If what you're monitoring is the process by which you're implementing things or a locally determined indicator, like in relation to Femina's work, then monitoring and evaluation can reinforce that accountability to the people and institutions that you aim to change. But there is a fundamental tension in the way that all aid works, and certainly the way that the US government works, that Congress views accountability as accountability to them. But for aid to work for conflict-affected countries and people, accountability has to be created to those people and to those a representative group of actors in those countries. That is a fundamental tension, and monitoring and evaluation is not going to solve it. Institutional reform within the U.S. government might. So I'll just leave it there for now. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Susanna, for unpacking that very difficult and complex um, question and, and, and topic. Um, I want to turn to Sunny to maybe talk a little bit more about this, maybe dig a bit deeper and also think about um, uh, why language is important. Um, also, in terms of uh, the power dynamic between um, donors and beneficiaries and, um, and, and, and how you think that we should describe um, the uh, engagement um, between donors and um, beneficiaries uh, in, in conflict-affected contexts. Thank you. Uh, I think Susanna laid it out, said it well. I think monitor and evaluation is a key element here. But I, I will also add one dimension to it. I think monitoring and evaluation is also based on value, right? Values, what you value. And sometimes the challenge in aid programming internationally is that while peace building is based on principles and values of equity, of justice, of inclusion, the models, the management models to which we deliver those programmings are based on values such as efficiency, right? Effectiveness, uh, delivery. Uh, so you, you have that contradiction right there, all right? Uh, so you have that. On one side, you have those management values or things that people value. And then you have uh, the program itself based on a different set of values. So how do you reconcile those? And I think it would help us as we move forward, and Susanna alluded to this, to agree that we should be learning and to be humble. Because it's, you said something, Susanna, very powerful, is that, uh, you know, COVID also taught us that we are missing something. The aid community missed that opportunity to learn. I only wish we recognize it loudly, that we are also learning. Sometimes we don't, and we don't value that. We don't value the fact that by engaging with the Global South, in fact, we are not just building capacity. We are, in fact, co-learning. We are in that encounter, in that meeting, we are both learning and building our own capacities. Capacity to learn, capacity to improve how we do things, and it's also a reflection of ourselves, good bad not. So I think recognizing that there is co-learning happening, so therefore, how do we institute a process of dialogue whereby we track together how we are learning? we involve, we are in, we create that space to have a conversation about how we measure success. What does success look like for us, I mean the global world, and for the South? Have that genuine dialogue, right? And have that sense of mutual accountability. And coming to an agreement with what it means to be mutually accountable. And that brings me to the question of language. I don't have answers. I have many questions when it comes to language. The DEI language, for example. Let us ask ourselves, who is framing that issue? Is it the Global North or the Global South? Whose experience is being narrated, is being described, and by who? 
Let us do a small, a, a short Google search and see who's, most articles around this topic are authored by who. What are the words that are used? As we know, language creates realities. We live in the words that we create. And so for us is how do we open that space so that we have a genuine dialogue with the people we think we are interest we are representing and really know how they frame issues. I know there are many initiatives where there have been questionnaires, there are people at organizations are trying to engage, but I will encourage that because we have to co-create this space. We have to frame this issue together. And, um, and to do that, I'm I always, I paraphrase a colleague of mine at USIP who, say, who tells me, Sunny, we need to come in this space with genuine curiosity and sense of wonder. But I will add with empathy, trying to walk on the other, other's shoes and understand where they are coming from. I think that, and language is key. It's really key. Thank you so much. It, it seems like um, you're both really advocating for um, a reflective practice approach to learning and evaluation, um, but maybe taking it even a step further this time uh, around and saying that, you know, it should be a collaborative reflective practice approach where uh, donors are coming together with community-based partners to reflect on the practice and the implementation. Um, so more of, an, of a collaborative approach uh, is necessary for inclusion and equity. Um, Wonderful. So um, actually, um, I, uh, I teach in the COEX um, Conflict Resolution and Co Coexistence Master's Program um, at Heller. And ye yesterday, um, I think it was yesterday, yes, <laughs> the, the days come together during the pandemic. Um, we uh, had class and um, we're actually just discussing reflective practice um, and also discussing some potential questions for the panelists today. And my students come, came up with a couple. I'm gonna start with one and see if we have enough time um, for both questions uh, and open it to all of you, um, to whoever, whoever would like to engage with this question. Um, these are questions that were developed by my coexistence uh, master students in our strategies course, our strategies for coexistence. Um, so uh, I'm gonna start with, um, the question here, given that the U.S. government continues to undertake measures that do violence to many communities around the world, such as bombing strikes of innocent civilians in those communities, can you tell us more about how the U.S. could use international truth-telling recognition and apologies or other ways to demonstrate their commitment to promoting equitable development and peace programs? So um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it open um, to whoever wants to address um, that uh, big question. Who would like to take a stab? I what does that mean? <laughs> Go for it. Well, you know, uh, it's, 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 it's a very complicated at the same time, simple question. I mean, when when the new elections in the United States were 
were happening, Colombia had such a big expectation because we, uh, I'm sorry, in the previous government of USA, of US, um, we had a very complicated relation with the peace agreement. So I think that sometimes United States have to be very, have to have a high conscious of what he can do or they cannot do for other countries because that is the real life. I mean, maybe we don't like that, but it's that is real life. So when Mr. Biden came to power, our for us was something like hope again because we believe that he can have another approach to peace agreement and that he will support the peace agreement, but he will change also some kind of policies, for example, towards illegal crops. And all the idea of tension and bombing and, and having all this related. So, I don't know. If people are expecting that the the real policy of U U.S. will change because people are hoping to have a global change towards what security, militarization, equity, and all the things and justice we are expecting. So I think that that U.S. government can have a very important play in so for example we as colombians we we need the north american the the us government to really talk to our government in a way that we can move forward with the peace agreement that we can move forward with the policies as i have said uh, against crops that we don't want fumigation that we want we want really to move forward to uh, towards peace and what we the experience we were living previously to this new election was we were heading again to war so there must be a huge consciousness of what uh, us uh, will do in the global because it will take a country towards war or it will take them towards peace it, it's terrible to say it's so but it means a lot in the global policies thanks rosamilia um does anyone else want to take a stab at this i mean um do you think that acknowledgement and apologies are necessary i mean we're talking a lot about truth-telling domestically. Um, what about truth-telling and acknowledgement and apologies internationally? Yes, yes, that is very important. Uh, I, I mean, I think this is a complex issue. And then I, I mean, sometimes complex issue is always good to start with being practical. Uh, I think that uh, it's really just difficult for me to see an apollo like i, I don't it, it, uh, is i think in policy instruments like the global fragility act like uh, the presidential and uh, the executive order 
are very are strong ways, I think, provide us with a much more favorable policy narratives to allow progress, right? So I don't know if going around and apology uh, is, uh, it may make, uh, I'm not saying that Truth and Reconciliation Committee don't have their role, I mean, in, particularly in a given country, I'm not debating their values here. I'm just trying to look at a, a practical issue that we are facing, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how can government and donors help us advance uh, those issues. And I think policy frameworks, like the, white, the, uh, the, uh, the ones Corinne introduced, are a very good step, good instruments, are good instruments to shape that policy narrative, to create the incentive structure to allow progress, right? To give that permission structure and create space for dialogue, creativity, and innovation to move this important issue forward. And I will encourage many global powers or countries to actually look at those, uh, to look at ways to advance this policy conversation, I think. Uh, I will leave it there. Thank you both uh, for taking a stab at a difficult question. Um, uh, so I see that there have been uh, some, some questions have come in from the audience, um, <clears throat> and I'm going to ask one of them. But first, I'd like to ask uh, one more question from the students. Um, when you consider the continued relevance of Western powers to do things like reform the Security Council, are you optimistic that donors are really committed to change the way they engage with marginalized communities? They sure know how to, to take a shot. <laughs> okay, go ahead, Susan. I mean, I think behind this question, right, is the assumption that they were initially fully engaged. I mean, I think the thing is, and the thing that the Global Fertility Act begins to address is that there are many, many contradictions in any government's foreign policy. So one piece might be very focused on marginalized communities, right? So what Jennifer was describing was just right. I mean, it ticked all the boxes of how you should do it and what you should do and how you should engage. But another piece and another policy may directly contradict that. And I think the, the big challenge is, is that when you're in DC, right, you're living in the bureaucracy. And so you're playing out those bureaucratic battles and you don't realize that what you're doing in one office may completely contradict and undermine another one. And that the view of the people on the receiving end, they see all the hypocrisy and they see all of the contradictions. And the aim, the policy aim is to say, well, we'll have a whole of, of government approach, we'll have full coordination, which is a great idea, but often that just ends up in trying to split up a bureaucratic pie. And so I think this is a fundamental challenge. And I think in many ways, the question, if we're going to look at what can lead to progress, the question becomes, you know, how can we support the GFA and other efforts in actually demonstrating that a different way of doing aid is possible, right? And what a real commitment looks like. So in instances, where the US government wants to actually make a real commitment and try to get all the different parts of the government in order, it sees that, that there is a model there. 
But at this point, I think that I'm optimistic that there are some individuals, organizations that are doing amazing work to engage marginalized communities, but that there are a lot of other systems, individuals, organizations that just don't have that as, that, as their priority and that they, under, they therefore undermine the good work being done often. I can add to Susanna's comments. Um, I, I think you're right, and you know I can only speak for you know USAID and Women, Peace, and Security. And certainly, we have been always super committed to increasing our engagement with marginalized communities. Um, we've always made sure that a bottom-up approach to implementing women and girls programming in the conflict and crisis space was a priority for us. Um, in particular, not just informing our program activities, which obviously um, impact them the most, but our policy initiatives. And I think we've seen that with even the resolution of 1325 over 20 years ago, which was informed and written by local women peace builders. Um, and then all the way up to our relevant strategies on women peace and security and our implementation plan, we've used and uh, did peer-to-peer -peer learning, frankly, of what we've always called it. We've never called it M&E per se. We've always called it peer-to-peer -peer learning uh, with our local women leaders to inform those policies and decisions. And just, I would say on a personal note, um, as a black woman, you know, it is my priority leading the WPS agenda for the agency, it has always been a priority for me to make sure that I'm including all voices of women and recognizing women are not monolithic, right? We, we, we can't talk about women in one um, monolithic agenda, you know, ethnic and minority women, women of rural communities, women of different abilities um, also need to be included in the conversation when we talk about peace-building efforts. Um, and so, you know, for me, I, I particularly know, and I have, you know, a place in my heart because I know what it feels like to be unseen and unheard. And so this is a very personal agenda to me. And so working with our Foreign Service National uh, Mission staff, um, particularly making sure they have leadership and voice and agency in our programming is very important to me personally um, to engage them. Um, and then including and making sure that, to your point, Susanna, earlier, that our workforce represents America, represents um, people um, that we see every day, you know, that it is more diverse um, when we go in the field. And it's just not all men or all white men or all uh, women of, of one particular um, color, race, or background. And so that is very important to me to make sure we're representing um, the diversity of America uh, when we go into the field. Um, and so I know for us, you know, embarking on a DNI task force has been one step closer to, to marking off these things, which seems so simple, but yet so difficult in a bureaucracy to do. Um, and I think everyone for their grace as we are trying to really come over to a new piece of America, really, you know, really this EO and DEI set the standard for us. It was our marching orders to say, you know, this isn't, as we say with WPS all the time, it's not a nice thing to do, <laughs> it's a smart thing to do. And that's why we need to take this approach um, to DEI more seriously. And, and I think just seeing how awesome it was to see our VP, the first woman VP, first woman of color, even speak at the commission on the status of women just last week, representing America, representing women, peace and security and our agenda in this space has been so awesome. And I think, you know, it can only go up from here.
Thank you, Jennifer. Um, I want to uh, leave a little bit of time for questions um, from uh, the audience. Uh, and you just still have a few minutes to ask questions if you have any burning last minute ones. Um, I, I'm looking here at uh, some of the questions that have been sent in. And um, many have the theme um, of success. Um, people seem to really want to uh, hear about examples um, of, of successful uh, DEI um, and successful um, peace building, uh, inclusion and equity in, in, in peace building and, and development. Um, and in particular, there's one question um, that is maybe more specific, which is related to um, women and girls, um, uh, which asks, since women and girls are often excluded from decision-making processes, how can we better engage them in peace building without placing an undue burden on them to facilitate peace? Um, and and it, it relates a bit to a question that I skipped earlier um, about, uh, about, uh, about women's rights in conflict-affected settings um, and, and how we can be respectful of power dynamics and contending agendas within women's groups, um, but still be adequately responsive and inclusive. How can we... Um, uh, how, how can we, can, can you offer us any examples of successful efforts at doing what we're um, hoping to, to, to do more of? I don't know. I would like to take a little bit to talk about that. I, it's, it's a very hard question to answer. We always try to find a good example to show that sometimes and uh, how we can do this in a better way or how we have done it in a better way. But let me start saying that still the answers and the way we are delivering this, it keeps a big burden over women almost all the time. We have and an, grassroots leadership and grassroots organizations and women, we, ha we, we have a lot of experience, we have a lot maybe of answers, but we don't have the infrastructure or oh, many of the people in the grassroots organizations don't have like the support, the organizational support, the infrastructure, the media to do the work. So still, I have to say, many, many, many of the actions will be supported by the uh, by the work and, and the extra work that will, women will do all the time. I, I, I sometimes bring on board this example. What means in the global north, five hours of work means for us 16. So for you thinking it's very easy to say we are going to do this and this and this in a very efficient way, for us, it will take double or a little bit more. 
So you have to, we don't have the, the internet there. We don't have uh, all the infrastructure you have. We don't have even, some people don't even have, in many regions, they have to look for the paper. They have to look for everything to doing and to go and, and pick up the women. So I, I will really love to have good examples and I can have good examples of creativeness and good examples of a lot of, but I want to talk about this doesn't mean that there is not a burden over women and over leadership. And we have to change that. And we are trying to change it between women because sometimes they have put the idea in our head that because women are good and women are workers and we want better societies and we are peace builders, we have to sacrifice our lives, our own lives towards society. And we don't want that anymore. We don't want to sacrifice. So one of the first steps that we are doing, and it's a very good lesson, is that we are taking care of ourselves. We are putting limits to international community, to national communities, to our husbands, to everyone, to our children, to everyone. We are saying we have to take care. We have to take care of people that will take care of others. But if we don't take care of us, then we are going to have a lot of problems when we come to protection. So I think that even those small relations are changing because we don't want more the, the speech of resolution. Uh, uh, yeah, it's the good word. Uh, resiliation, resiliation. Resilience, maybe? Resilience, re resilience. Because in behalf of that word, we have supported, ah, women are so resilient. No, we have a big attitude of resilience, but sometimes being so resilient will break us out. So one of the good lessons is to understand that women in the global south are beginning to put limits because they have also to take care of themselves. Sounds a bit like the global north as well, but yes, point taken. <laughs> Thank you, Rosa Emilia. Um, does anyone else want to take a stab at this question? Susanna, do you want to go or? I can give a quick example, Jennifer, but you have, I'll, there's one quick example, I think, and I would more say about DEI, kind of internal institutional change. So I s studied one organization that, um, that was operating in Burundi at a time when there was a big change in relation to who ruled the country, right? And so it was going from a Tutsi-dominated society to one in which Hutu, who are 85% of the population, were gaining authority. And this organization that was working it was CARE. They were working on peace and reconciliation and justice. And they looked at their staff and they realized, wait a second, most of our staff are actually men of, of Tutsi ethnicity, right? So we're trying to go out and talk to all these Hutus who have long been oppressed and yet look at who we are. 
and they stopped doing what they were doing and they took a year to actually change the entire structure of their office, right? They absolutely transformed who they were, what they were doing, who was hired, who was going to the community and where they were operating. It was very painful for the organization in many ways, but it was absolutely the right thing to do and it made the communities in which they were working much, much more receptive to them and to their message. So that's the potential type of transformation we're talking about, about thinking about who you are as an organization, how you're going to be perceived, who you're going to have access to, and how you are going to reinforce or challenge the existing hierarchy. Thank you, Susanna. That's a great example, especially for this conversation. Um, uh, very appropriate. Thank you. Jennifer, did you want to add something? Uh, yeah, I would quickly just add again, um, both comments were spot on, including Rosie Amelia's conversation about boundaries, which I am all for, and uh, the really complicated word of resilience. It doesn't mean that you should incur more things because you are resilient. And um, I just, it resonates with me on so many levels, um, personally and professionally. Um, I think, um, you know, there are interesting power dynamics to your point, Pamina, about different power dynamics within women's organizations. And, you know, we've observed really as an international community, particularly the donor community, that we are tending to attract the same type of donor. You know, the, the, the woman that is Western educated or very proficient in English or has very good social networks um, to get her at the embassies or at invitations to apply for funding. And so I think for us and our programming, we really looked at at, you know, how we can tap into very local ethnic, um, particularly minority women, um, those that may be not, not be proficient in English or not be Western educated, et cetera, to get them opportunities, not just to apply for funding, but to be engaged in some of the program activities in space. And so, you know, this program has ended, but it's such an amazing um, example that I always keep quoting it and so does our, our leadership. Um, but in Burma, you know, we really get the sense of, you know, people would say, well, we don't know who those women are. We would love to include them, but we don't know who those ethnic and minority women are. Where are they? I don't think they really exist. And so our our money, yeah, it, it's quite frightening, Pamina. Those those things actually, those words are actually said. And wow. so our, our WPS program, we actually did a mapping with in partnership, in permission with the women um, from all the various states, um, including their name, their organizations, but also their technical expertise. So some women were really particularly um, empowered to work in the economic empowerment space. And that is important information to know when you're talking about engaging at a peace table. Some women were more talking about um, their expertise in the democracy and government space, et cetera. And so it really literally mapping exercises that you know was online and available even in print across the communities with their permission um, to show people who those women are. And I think that's one example in the peace building space but then also as we think about women running for office, um, ethnic and minority women we're working with right now in Kosovo to make sure that they are you know, equipped with the capacity to run for offices, but also having opportunities to network across party lines and with you know, government entities to put them in positions where they actually can uh, feel more equipped uh, once they're in office, but certainly more prepared to run um, for office. And we've done that in very different contexts like Liberia as well, um, over. 
Thank you for those great examples, Jennifer. Um, and thank you, Jennifer and Rosa Emilia and Sani and Susanna for um, your participation today and for your frank conversation and discussion. Um, I really enjoyed this uh, and I appreciate that you are willing to take the risk to engage in this complex and difficult topic in an open and honest way. Um, and I think, you know, we've just scratched the surface. There's still so much to talk about, but um, we need to conclude now. So I'm going to um, leave it to Corinne uh, to provide us with some closing comments. Great. Thank you so much, Pamina. And thank you to all of our panelists. It was a very rich discussion on a very complex set of issues. I found myself taking a lot of notes, uh, and I'm sure a lot of viewers did as well. There were some very tough questions too, so I appreciate everyone's candor in trying to tackle those, uh, many of which I don't think we have any answers to. So this was more of a discussion than anything else. Um, I took away three takeaways um, from this conversation. There were many more, I'm sure, but um, the first one was a reminder, a very good reminder, I thought, um, that the pandemic's impacts are really more of a two-sided coin than uh, going in a one-way direction. Um, and on the one hand, um, Rosa Emilia's point that the pandemic has certainly set marginalized communities back maybe 10, 20 years. Um, but Sani also reminded us that it's very important to recognize that the pandemic has also forced governments, donors to rely on local communities in ways that we maybe wouldn't have done without it um, and has helped to shift the balance of power, has forced us to shift the balance of power in a way. Um, and I think it's an important reminder also um, to donors to really focus on understanding and leveraging the resilience of communities and local actors. Um, and I thought Rosa Emilia's suggestion was really key that if we take that perspective, that two-sided perspective seriously, um, then the way to frame their way forward between donors and the communities in which they work is really to look at it as more of a dialogue between different forms of knowledge um, and, and a two-way street um, in a way. So um, a, a lot of important conversations there around the pandemic. Um, Susanna reminded us that um, reforming peacebuilding practices uh, and the way donors engage in fragile settings is very, very difficult. Um, but I think her point that ultimately reforming the way the U.S. government does this um, will require reforming us in, on the inside. Um, federal agencies, the State Department, USAID, the workforce. Um, and it's really an internal reform process that's necessary, according to DEI principles. So these two agendas really do come together. Um, and, and that's required for doing good peace building. Um, and then I thought there was also a third really important discussion around the importance of learning um, and thinking about learning differently. I really like the terms um, underscoring, I think, the fact that language is really important. Co-learning, um, I think Sani uh, or someone talked about co-creation, which USA does. Um, Jennifer called it peer-to-peer -peer learning. Um, but that notion that we're, that donors and communities really need to do this together. Um, and I personally agree with Susanna that peace building is about learning, but it's about doing it together um, and addressing the challenges that communities face together in a more collaborative approach. 
Um, so thank you very much to our panelists for uh, tackling this difficult set of issues, Versa Emilia, Susanna, Jennifer, and Sani. Um, I also want to thank Pamina and the Heller School for their partnership on this event. Um, and I want to thank our audience for watching and for your questions. And I hope this is a conversation that can continue. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Mm -hmm.